Hi friends, Derek Sweatman here, lead pastor of Atlanta Christian Church in lovely downtown Atlanta. Welcome to the podcast for the fourth Sunday of Easter. On this podcast, we explore what it means to be a people of goodness. Hope you enjoy grace and peace, and we will see you on Sunday downtown. When the darkness closes in When the shadows start to fall around me Oh, your morning will begin Easter is a season. It doesn't let us move forward, but it it forces us to sit still and to think deeply about our lives in light of the resurrection. The resurrection, I mean, I can't overstate this. The resurrection is the most overstated. I mean, you cannot overstate the resurrection. And so it calls us to sit and to think about that deeply for a season, to think about the event and the promise of the resurrection. And during this season, we're forced to ask a really important question. And that question is, okay, is my life any different because of the resurrection? Is creation different in light of the resurrection? Does Easter make any difference in my life in the here and now? If you were with us on Easter Sunday, we looked at uh, Matthew's gospel account of the resurrection. And in Matthew's gospel account, he talks about one thing that the other four, uh, three accounts do not talk about, and it's this earthquake that took place at the tomb of the resurrected Jesus. Now, if you were with us, you'll remember that Matthew isn't talking about a literal earth-shaking thing that took place. He's talking about what the resurrection does to creation. It upends it. It changes the landscape of reality. That when the women approached the tomb on that Easter morning, when they recognized that Jesus was gone, it shook the foundations of their world. And that if we don't see Easter as something that shifts our reality, then we haven't felt the earthquake of Easter. We've just learned about some story. And so in Matthew's version, it reminds us that resurrection is not this aberration of normalcy, but resurrection is the new normal. That resurrection is the thing that now defines reality. That in light of this, we live different lives, marked as a people of Easter, as people of the resurrection. I like that as a, um, a reputation for the church. Like, that's what I want for people to think about, not just our church, but the church in general. What, what, is, what is the church about? And people say, I don't know, but they're about like they're really into resurrection. They're really into old things becoming new. They're really into dead things breathing again. It's very weird. But if we're honest, like that's not really the popular opinion of the church. What would you say the church is about in culture? And culture might speak back something completely different than that. And our text for this season has been the letter of 1 Peter. Give you a guess as to who wrote this letter. Anybody? Very good class. Very good. Um, and in this letter, what we're learning about, it's, one of the, it's, one, it's known as one of the Easter letters. Because it's, it's so focused on, in light of the resurrection, we are now this kind of people. And the first Sunday in this letter, we talked about how we are a people of hope. We're a hopeful people. Not grumpy people, but hopeful people. And then last week, Kyle got up here and taught and did a wonderful job of reminding us that we're also a people of love. That we are a loving people. 
And today, we are a people of goodness. Say the word goodness. I love that word. I use it for everything. Like, when we just want to go get something to eat during the week, it's like, let's go down the street to Max's Pizza and get some of that goodness. You ever do that? Is that just me? Am I way behind? Is this like so? Yeah, we did that in the early 2000s. All right. So I like the word goodness, and I want to talk about that today. Uh, if you have a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, 25, actually. Uh, I'm going to read it in full, and then we'll come back through it and um, take it apart a little bit. Start with verse 18. Servants, say that word. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. As if to say, there are people with influence over our lives who don't use that justly. To them also live with respect, he says. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So, lest we move on from verse 18 and keep it very innocuous, verse 19 tells us that there's some sinister stuff happening to these people Peter is speaking to. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Well, that's good news. We get to suffer like Jesus. Verse 22, he committed no sin Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Say the word righteousness. Yeah, that's not about holiness. That's about justice that we are serving in a way that makes an impact. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your soul. Let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through just a couple of things together. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this letter, this ancient letter that we have that we can learn from, that we can read. And more importantly, we can let it read us that it shows us what must change, what must be altered. It speaks to us in ways that um, only you can do. And so we pray that that happens this morning. Thank you for this morning that we've had. And as we move through this, that you teach us something new, something fresh. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Now, a couple things about the background. Uh, Peter is the writer of this letter. He's a disciple of Jesus. Some say the lead disciple of Jesus. And he writes this letter. It's actually a circular letter. It goes to many different churches in these Roman cities in what we would call Turkey. Back then it was called Asia Minor, but now it's called Turkey. Um, and in Turkey in the late first century, the Jesus movement is growing. It's, it's swelling. And what Peter does in the very first part of the letter is he addresses this growing movement as exiles. Say the word exile. Now, these aren't exiles in that they had been physically exiled to a city from another one. But he addresses them as exiles because, because of their new and developing faith, they feel like they're not at home anymore. 
It's hard to live a new life in the old neighborhood. Amen? And when you change, when things change in your life, the people around you that have known you since birth don't often go with you on that. Just try it. Just, just experiment with it this week. Just go to your friends and go, hey, I know we've done this as a group for so long, but I'm not going to do it anymore because of my faith. See if they keep you around. Right? Just try it. Just for fun. And just see if you get marginalized, even from your own circle. And in this context, these exiles, not literal exiles, but social exiles, are experiencing this tension that's resulting in a kind of suffering and marginalization, low-grade persecution. Now, Peter opens this part of the letter speaking directly to servants. It's a bad translation. The word is actually slave. The word is actually slave. So this is very, he's speaking to a very troubled situation. He's speaking both literally but also symbolically. Now, in the first century when letters were written, you need to know this. When letters were written to worshiping communities like synagogues, other cult communities, but also to these early house churches. When letters were written, what was normal in that day and age was that the letter would be sent to the worshiping community and then it would be read to the community when they gathered. So if we got a letter from Peter, we would read that today. We'd read the whole thing. I've just read you a piece, but we would read the whole thing. And what the writer typically does is he speaks to various particular specific issues within that community. So when you read Paul's letters, Paul actually calls people by name. It's like, oh, and this guy, he lists his name and he says something. That's how they would learn. They don't get a text. They get a letter that was brought months, you know, months in the making. And so when these letters were read, what was normal, and go with me on this, what was normal is that the letter would be addressed to those with the most influence. The head of the household, if it was written to a house. The head of the community, if it was written to a community. The head of the worshiping family, if it was written to a worshiping family, would be the one with the most influence. Who does Peter address here? The slaves. It's so subversive. So Peter speaks to the slaves about how they should live in a way to honor Christ. And while he does that, you've got to remember who's in the gathering, the slave and the master. So in a way, he's speaking to the servants, but the master feels very uncomfortable very guilty. He's learning about the humanity of his servant. He's learning about how Christ wants to abolish those things. In the early Christian communities, there's great evidence of their uh, aggressive push towards uh, equalizing all people groups. And Peter does that in a kind of subversive way here, speaking to those at the lowest rung, which gives those at the highest a chance to listen from afar and be convicted. But what they're hearing is quite interesting. They're hearing that even though their servants suffer because of their faith, that they are to maintain, that they are to endure. That's the literal reading. But Peter is also speaking quite symbolically. This is how it includes us. That when we are people of Christ, when we are part of the Jesus tradition, it marginalizes us. If it doesn't, even in a small way, if it doesn't, we're not doing it right. That doesn't mean we do our faith in a way to make people mad. That's not it. It's just that people can't take it all the time. They can have too much of Jesus. 
and it's just a reality that if we're living the life of Christ, we will sometimes find ourselves suffering socially. Now, the central statement in our text today is this right here on the screen, so you can kind of watch as we go. Verse 20, but he says, if when you do what? Good. We're going to break that down because that's a key word today. If when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. So the background here is quite simple. The people to whom Peter was writing were undergoing some kind of social suffering within their relational world simply because of their goodwill. It's weird, isn't it? How does serving other people marginalize you? And they were experiencing that. For some reason, it brought suffering and isolation to them. Now, two things here um, that we want to think about. Number one is that the way of Jesus is not hidden. It's very conspicuous. It's the first thing Peter makes clear in this part of the letter. That the way of Jesus is not just soulful. It's obvious and open. People should see it. You know what I'm saying? They should see Jesus in us. When you think about faith, when I think about faith in God, what we often think about are beliefs. And when we think about beliefs, we think about the words that describe those beliefs. We think about the language that gives uh, definition to our faith. Things like confessions, and statements of faith, and the songs we sing. Those are all like, that's just language around what we believe in our souls and in our minds. That's what we think about often when we think about faith, what words we use to describe what we believe. And what we say about our faith is actually quite important. But in the Jesus tradition, even in the Jewish tradition from which it comes, in that tradition, words about faith are meaningless. They have no life without, can you imagine what I'm going to say next? Action. Even in the Jewish system from which Jesus arises, uh, words about faith matter less than life about faith. How do we live this out? Faith must be more than just audible. Faith must be multidimensional. It must come to life. The great Flannery O'Connor said, leadership tells. Love that. In other words, you can talk about leadership all day, but let me see it. The actual leadership that you give, that's what tells. The actual life that you live is what tells me what you truly believe. When I was like in fifth grade, I had this friend, I don't even remember his name, but I had this friend who had these weird shoes. There were these black shoes, and they just had like a place for the big toe, and then the rest just kind of fit in there. This is like the early 80s, so I didn't know. I couldn't look it up. Uh, wasn't in Encyclopedia Britannica, you know? But he had these weird shoes, and he wore them all the time. And I was like, what's up with those shoes? And this is what he says to me. He says, these are my ninja shoes. Are you with me? I was like, ninja shoes? Why do you have ninja shoes? And then it begins. He's like, well, I take ninjutsu. You know, and I'm like fifth grade. I'm like, seriously, you are now my messiah. Like, so you can kick people's A's, like that's how this works, like you can just totally take people down. And so we started this friendship around the fact that he convinced me that like he was a ninja, you know, this is the only ninja I knew, you know, that's it. And so like we would hang out and then like off hours, like he would show me moves 
you know? I didn't know if they were real. They looked real. They felt real. Like, he would touch my neck, and I would go down. I'm like, that's a ninja move. Like, it's got to be a ninja move, you know? And he would show me, like, how to, like, climb things. Like, I guess that's a ninja thing. And, uh, and so it was fantastic. Like, he was, like, literally, like, my other thing. Like, I had life and baseball and stuff. And then it was like, I got to go see, like, I'm a Padawan to this ninja. Like, that's what it was like. And so we did this for a while. And then one day, we're, like, in this large group of people on the field. And he starts to get, like, in a scuffle. What word is that? Fisticuffs. Uh, like an old guy. But he gets in this, like, argument with somebody. And I'm like, it's no big deal. He's a ninja. I've seen his ninja stars. Like, he's brought those and, like, unfolded them in, a, like, a, a, a cloth thing. I'm like, wow. You have swords and stuff. This guy's getting picked on. I'm like, it's not a big deal. He'll take him down. It's not a big deal. He's a ninja. And, like, one thing leads to another. It gets a little heated. And within, like, seconds, my ninja friend is on the ground. The guy totally kicked his A. Like, that was it. And I was like, are you serious? It start, I started to question all the things he taught me. You know, like, I, I, I clearly don't know real ninja moves. This has all been a fraud. You guys don't think the story's amazing. This story's amazing. So... <laughs> Everything he said about himself, you know where I'm going with this, right? It was, it was just false. Until you can totally take down, like, 35 people that want to beat you up, you're not a ninja. Like, that's what I was thinking. Well, let's just try to make a transition here. Faith. I didn't allot for this failure So in the notes, so we're just going to move on. Uh, faith is validated, and this is, within, this is strong within the Jesus tradition. Faith is validated not in what I say, but what I do. Faith is validated in the living and not the saying. When Kyle preached last week, he, uh, for those of you visiting, uh, he works at a campus ministry on Emory University's campus. And on the wall of their campus house is this wonderful phrase that says, when talk is cheap, hospitality is our sermon. Hospitality is our sermon. It's a, it's a new take on an ancient phrase from St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That we somehow uh, live the gospel more than we say the gospel. That the way of Jesus is not hidden, but conspicuous. And because of that, the way of Jesus will at times leave us in the margins of culture. How? Well, oddly enough, it happens through driven, relentless pursuit of good in the life of others, especially when we seek the good for those who are most at risk and who are most at need. This is what Peter is addressing here. The phrase in the text says, when you do good. That's a long Greek phrase. It has nothing to do with morality. It has nothing to do with what you think but it has everything to do with profiting the other who is in need. Uh, the definitions are actually to help others, profit the other for the common good, to take your resources, to take your life, and to live it for the common good of those, especially in the margins, who are most at risk. And in this weird, twisted way, when we seek the good of those at the bottom, for some reason... When we seek the good of those on the edges, 
of those at risk of deeper and more pronounced brokenness, we experience a level of suffering and isolation. We just do, and I don't exactly know why. But if you turn your life towards those at the edges, you will lose friends. The way of Jesus will at times leave us in the margins simply because the way of Jesus at times takes us there. It takes us there. I love this ancient letter. I'll read a piece of it. It's called The Letter to Diognetus. It's a second century letter. It is describing the life of these early Christians. He writes, For Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own or use a strange dialect or live life out of the ordinary. In other words, they're normal people. They live in their respective countries but only as resident aliens. Now listen to how the writer switches these things around. They participate in all things as citizens, and yet they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign territory is a homeland for them, and every homeland is a foreign territory. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their children once they are born. That gives you an insight as to how well children were treated in the ancient world. These people had kids, but they didn't leave them on the street to be abandoned, basically. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. Wow. Those don't even go together. They are found in the flesh, but not living according to the flesh. They live on earth, but they participate in the life of heaven. Come on. That's fantastic. They live here, but really, they're just a commercial for something to come. They are obedient to the laws that have been made, but by their own laws, they supersede the laws. They love everyone and are persecuted by all. They are not understood and they are condemned. They are put to death and yet they are made alive. They are impoverished and yet they make many rich. They lack all things and abound in everything. They are dishonored and they are exalted in their dishonors fantastic description of what the people of Jesus should convey to the world. That even though it's tough, even though there is suffering, we continue to live the life of Christ in our context. Peter is laying out this alternative ethic where goodness is the Christ-like response to a culture that is based on status, a culture that has very distinguishable categories of who matters and who doesn't. And for who doesn't matter, those at the bottom, those at the margins, those who are mistreated, Peter teaches this other option. Embrace your suffering as a sign that you're doing it right, that you're doing the right thing. And most importantly, in your suffering, in our suffering, somehow we are not far from Jesus because he too was mistreated for the way he lived. He too was maligned because of how he lived and uh, interacted with others. It's very interesting. If you read the gospel stories, there's really no reason Jesus should have been crucified. What was his main message? Love God, love your neighbor. Ooh. This is perhaps why Pilate is just asking Jesus, like, I have no idea why you're here. I have no idea why you're on trial. This seems silly to me. So they have to get him on some sort of claim, like, well, he said he's a king, so that's treason. So hang him on a cross but he's not up there because of anything he said 
And yet, in his own world, in his own context, because of the way he interacted with others, especially those on the edges and in the margins, women, children, the poor, those who were physically disabled, those of different cultures, because of that, it created such a hatred for him that those in power could creatively push him through to be crucified. But just taking him at his word and his actions, it's weird that he died. Now the message here for us today is the same as it was then. If we experience suffering as a payment for our service and goodness to those who need it, we are edging closer to Jesus. And when we do that, we are, as Paul says, we are sharing in his sufferings along the way. Again, this is about thinking creatively about those who are below us. And I don't mean below us as in less than, but those who are broken and struggling more than us. Like for examples, a few, a few for examples. If at work you lose an important deal or you sabotage an important deal or you say no to an important deal, a lucrative deal, simply because something in that deal doesn't feel right, that someone lower down the ladder is going to get hurt. And you say no to that, and then everybody in your office is just like, you have a new nickname, and they're talking about you, and you're suffering socially because of that. Peter is saying, good. That's good. You did the right thing. If socially, um, you throw a party, Maybe you guys have heard of these parties. Have people over. And you invite 30 of your friends over because we're all really close to 30 people. And on the party list, you see, okay, there's four people coming over, three people, maybe just one that's coming over that I know their story and nobody else knows their story. So uh, we're not going to do alcohol at this party. And then you get hell for that. Peter says, good. Take it. Take it like a man. Take it like a woman of God. Because you're not thinking of those who can handle it. You're thinking of those who can't. You're thinking marginally. A guy who attended church here for years uh, before they, he and his family moved uh, worked for corporate in a major organization here in the city. And he was often on the road. And he said, every trip I do two things. I get my own hotel room and I get my own rental car. And I'm the pastor. I know something's coming. I'm like, why? He's like, because every time the guys that go with me, every time, it always ends up in a strip club. And so at some point, I can get in my car and I can go back to the hotel room. And they give him help for that. And Peter says, good. That's good. That's what we're talking about. Or maybe you work in an industry where, and I don't know if this makes sense to you, but do you ever feel like you give more than you give back? Anybody a teacher? My wife works in, my wife's a teacher. She, she knows. In fact, this was her contribution to the sermon. I was like, hey, any examples in life where you just kind of, you know, it doesn't feel fair? She's like, oh yeah, nine months, nine months of the year. doesn't feel fair. Like we pour and we pour everything in. And what comes back? Nothing. Nothing. I get that. Maybe that's you. Whatever it is that you do, maybe it's that you're just pouring out into whatever it is that you do and it doesn't come back in equal return. 
good. Be closer to Christ in that. The Christian life is not fair. Fairness is actually not even a biblical value. But grace is, and suffering is, and oddity is, and upstreamness, it's a word I made up, is. Cognitive dissonance, those are biblical values. And to live the life of Christ is to live this kind of, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not supposed to feel this way, but I feel good that I'm going through this. And that's what Peter is saying to us. Let me close by reading some words from Paul in Galatians 6, and then Jeff will come up and get us ready for communion. But in this text, I love this text, Paul's speaking to this church in Galatia, one of the same cities that Peter is sending his letter to as well. But Paul says, and I'll just read the whole thing here. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should make fun of them and malign them, cast them out. I'm making this up, guys. That's not it. You who are spiritual should restore him, to reach down and restore him in spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What does he mean by that? That we might think we are better. That we might see ourselves as greater. Because we helped somebody. I consulted them and it worked. Yet my life is a wreck. That's what he's talking about. I consoled them in their anguish. And yet I'm a mess. Then he goes on to say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is actually nothing, I love that. he deceives himself. I'm awesome. I'm so awesome. And everyone says, no, you're not. I'm just, I'm just putting stuff in here. I don't know if you guys figured that out yet. Maybe I should indicate when it's me and not Paul. Uh, verse 4, I'll just read it straight through at this point. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things to the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. In other words, Paul's just saying, our own interests are always dead ends. If that's all it is, it's always a dead end. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us grow, let us not grow weary in doing, what's the next word? Come on. Good. Good guess. Let us not grow weary in doing good because doing good is tiring. If you don't agree with me, you're not doing any good. But doing good is tiring. And Paul goes on to say, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, we have this opportunity. Let us do good to everyone. Amen? That's the people we're called to be, a people of goodness. Let me pray for you, and then Jeff will set up communion.